Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor, joined today by Hattie Williams, News Reporter, and Madeline Davies, our Deputy News and Features Editor. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Church Times, five issues of our print and digital editions for £5 at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. Coming up on this week's podcast, we discuss the worrying state of religious education in the UK. We also talk about a new book on Africa, which the Archbishop of Canterbury has endorsed. And Adrian Harris, the digital guru at Church House, speaks to Tim Wyatt about the church and the digital world. First, a quarter of all state secondary schools are struggling to meet their legal obligation to teach religious study. That's according to data obtained by the National Association of Teachers of Religious Education. Hattie, you've been following this story in some depth. Could you give us some of the findings from the report? Sure. So there's quite a few um, uh, things to point out here. As you say, um, firstly, that secondary schools in general in the UK are struggling to actually fulfil the legal obligation to teach um, RE. So this data is obtained from uh, an actual government census of the the school workforce census and that was obtained by a freedom of information request and that found that um, out of the 2,793 schools uh, that actually took part in the census, uh, 28%, that's 787 schools, said that they gave no time to religious education in year 11 which is the GCSE year and that, that they say that equates to about eight, 800,000 pupils, um, so obviously quite a significant mm. number. Um, They also offer some figures on uh, non-examined RE, so um, those who are schools who are saying that they provide um, some kind of religious education, but it's not necessarily examined at GCSE level, either the short course or the long course. But uh, the analysis found that 83% of those schools actually admitted that their students received zero hours of teaching uh, per week, meaning that in practice it was actually not on the curriculum at all. which the report actually uh, calls um, a, a kind of tick box exercise. This is pretty damning stuff. I mean, it says the provision of RE varies across the UK depending on, on the type of school. Is that whether it's a church school or a non-church school or an academy? Exactly that, yes. So um, they talk about schools with religious character, which, um, uh, as you say, equates to sort of church schools or faith schools. And they tend to do better in the provision of religious education. It's reassuring. Um, absolutely, yes. And I, I think that's kind of uh, makes sense, really. I mean, I think they have uh, a vested interest in improving their religious ed- education. And this was compared um, with academies, which were not uh, doing so well. So uh, just to give you a flavour, uh, 96% um, of uh, schools with a religious character Uh, as defined in the report, offer the subject at Key Stage 4, which is GCSE level, um, and 90% uh, also dedicated at least 40 minutes of teaching to the subject a week. Um, And this was compared with academies, uh, in in which 73% offered RE at GCSE, um, but only 27% of those uh, offered more than 40 minutes of teaching a week. So at many academies, if you don't choose RE as a GCSE, you're, you're actually very unlikely to get any RE input. That's right. Um, and that's obviously caused some concern from uh, the association. Um, and they've actually laid out a number of recommendations. Firstly, calling on the Department for Education to hold schools to account for the, these uh, poor figures. Uh, also to uh, routinely publish data such as this um, for religious education provision, because obviously this was obtained, as I say, through an F- FOI. Most interestingly, they actually ask for the government to kind of publicly state the importance of religious literacy in the UK and also to improve teacher training on the subject. 
So the Commission on Religious Education, which we covered before, and this was set up by the Religious Education Council for England and Wales last year, um, it's, it published a report on yesterday, on, on Thursday. The chair of this commission is the Dean of Westminster, the very Reverend John Hall. He's written for us this week. Could you just give us a bit of a flavour of, of that report? Is that painting a similarly worrying picture? Um, sure. I mean, it, it doesn't sort of state specifically with facts and figures um, uh, what uh, religious provision is like in the UK, um, but it does uh, suggest that it can be improved and actually has a very uh, specific way um, of approaching that. So it, um, the report actually recommends a what it calls a national entitlement, um, which is basically a national plan uh, to improve, um, as I say, the state of uh, religious education in the UK. Dean Hall writes in this week's Church Times exclusively for us about that, so do urge people to, to read that. You've been speaking to the Chief Education Officer of the Church of England, the Reverend Nigel Genders, about all of this. What's his take? Well, he very much welcomes um, the idea of a national plan, um, and he says that um, it's very important to, um, actually, as the as the other report says, it's actually important for the government and others to um, uh, back uh, the importance of the subject. So he says, um, in his defence, what other academic subject brings different worldviews together, asks the big questions about life and helps to combat ignorance and extremism? RE does. Next. The Archbishop of Canterbury has praised a new book on Africa, calling on the continent's leaders to liberalise their economies and abandon hostility towards foreign investors. Madeline, you attended a book launch at Lambeth Palace last week. Could you tell us a bit more about the book and the arguments it's making? Yeah, so this is a book called Making Africa Work, a Handbook. Um, and the authors are part of the Brenthurst Foundation, which is a think tank based in Johannesburg, um, which aims to facilitate economic growth in Africa. In particular, um, they can be called in by African governments to um, offer consultancy and advice. One of the authors of the book also spoke at the event. He's a former president of Nigeria, um, Chief Obasanjo. Um, so he gave two anecdotes um, about the ways in which he had um, helped to grow the Nigerian economy during his time in office um, with a real focus on um, collaborating um, basically with entrepreneurs and businesses. I read a review of the book um, which suggested that it's actually sort of more of a manifesto than a sort of non-fiction guide and there's certainly sort of a very clear um, sort of political philosophy behind it um, which is as you say about liberalising the economy and basically the job of governments um, being to make the environment as sort of business friendly as possible so that private sector can do its work of um, creating jobs um, and creating sort of increases in GDP. Why do you think Archbishop Welby's hosting this launch? Do you think these are views with which he agrees? Um, well, interestingly, um, he was introduced by the new Bishop of Woolwich, um, Dr. Carraway, um, who described Justin Welby as an honorary Nigerian, mm. I think was the words that he used. Um, so obviously the Archbishop has got many links to Africa and particularly to Nigeria um, and had met Chief Obasanjo um, sort of before he was ordained, I believe. Um, so he's obviously got a real interest um, in Africa and in economic matters, as I think we saw the other week when he spoke about his role on the IPPPR's Commission on Economic Justice. So I think we have, have seen him speak out on matters of the economy and finance during his time in office. And he, you're, he's quoted in your piece as saying at the launch that the future of Africa depends on Africans and too often it's been outsiders who've told Africans how its future should be shaped. So perhaps in hosting this launch he was, he was trying to raise the profile of this book but very much leave it up to the authors to, 
make the arguments. Yeah, he, he actually spoke very briefly, and it was mainly to make that point that you know it's it's not for outsiders to tell Africa what to do. Um, I think we've seen that in other events as well, actually, in terms of sort of Anglican communion gatherings. Um, he will often sort of defer um, to people from the communion to answer questions rather than take them himself. Interestingly, the book sort of suggests that Africa should learn from. Um, other countries, other sort of developing economies, which which it thinks have a model which could work for Africa. So although perhaps not saying that other countries should dictate to African governments, it is quite critical of African leaders for sort of trying to reinvent the wheel rather than actually sort of following the example set by some other countries. You spoke to Christian Aid's private sector policy advisor, Dr. Matty Kohonen, about the book. What was his take uh, quite mixed. Um, he actually picked up on some points um, which the book makes as well. Um, so he talked about sort of diversifying Africa's economies. He talks about sort of the falling commodity prices and how Africa needs to diversify into other fields, including sustainable agriculture and light manufacturing. He did also pick up on um, something which I'd noticed in the book, um, which is that he doesn't talk very much about the threat of climate change in Africa and how business perhaps could respond to that and even potentially sort of um, invest in technologies that might tackle it. Um, And he talked about how, you know, climate change is a real threat to the continent and that sort of green technology should be part of the mix, which potentially is an oversight of the book. He also sort of touched on the fact that tax evasion, tax avoidance is perhaps also part of the picture. And so um, in as much as countries can benefit from foreign direct investment, Perhaps there are reasons why um, countries might be wary of business, wary of um, companies coming in to um, to profit from natural resources. There were some questions during the launch about talking about Africa um, as a whole. It actually sort of has dozens of countries within it. Um, the authors were quite defensive on that point and sort of argued that even though they're very different, many of them are poor and need to implement some fundamentals which they would argue are universal to all countries around the rule of law around what they're called economic hygiene so um, although I'm talking about Africa so I recognize that it it represents many countries but the the argument of the book is that there are some fundamentals that can be applied um, sort of universally. Which parts of this week's paper stood out for you both? There's quite a thorough report on the Festival of Preaching, um, which was held in Oxford last week. Um, It was a sold-out event, nearly 500 people came. So there were a number of uh, different speakers at the event. Um, The Bishop of Chelmsford, the Right Reverend Stephen Cottrell was there, Um, also Malcolm Geit, Canon Jessica Martin, the Reverend Nadia Boltz-Weber and Paula Gooder, uh, all speaking on the art of preaching and and how to improve. Um, So any tips for your Sunday sermon, there it is. I really like a feature that we've got on the history of the Lambeth Conference and particularly the picture which is on page 22 this week which shows all the primates gathered in 2008. Um, They're all singing Amazing Grace while they wait for the photo to be taken. I think it's a a lovely picture and it's sort of in contrast to the one below which is the very first um, Lambeth Conference in 1867 which is just a gathering um, of sort of suited... Um, white men outside Lambeth Palace and just the contrast with what the very diverse communion looks like today. Um, So that's a feature by Jesse Zink um, who is actually now the principal of a theological college in Canada, um, formerly of Cambridge. Um, Recommend that one. I enjoyed some of the book reviews this week, in particular the um, former primus of the Scottish Episcopal Church, David Chillingworth. 
he reviewed Shepherd of Another Flock, which is a memoir of parochial ministry by David Wilborn. I think this will resonate with, with many readers who are, who are clergy. Uh, he talks about, as pastoral clergy have done through the ages, Wilborn shares the lives of his people, the humour and the tragedy, and they cut him a bit of slack. You modern clergy may be a bit wet, but at least you're kind, one of them says. There aren't many people working in Church House who can boast a CV which includes stints with Tesco, the Conservative Party and Booper. But the Church of England's first ever head of digital, Adrian Harris, has exactly that background. He was hired last year to fill a brand new position, transforming how the C of E engages with the internet and technology. I sat down with him nearly one year into the role to hear how he and his team were getting on in helping a 1,800-year-old church to embrace Facebook, hashtags and HTML. Adrian, you're the C of E's first ever head of digital. Why do you think the church decided to hire someone in that role? What had changed in the church or in society to make it necessary? I think there was a recognition from the Director of Comms at the time, Aaron Aurora, and from the Secretary General that there's a huge opportunity for the church to invest in this area, a hugely growing area, and a, a way of reaching people, both people who go to church regularly and those who don't, and the opportunity it presented. And I think this three-year programme of work offers the church a real number of possibilities with the investment that's been given to catch up and get ahead in the way that we use digital and social to reach people. Mm. How do you see you and your team fitting into the mission of the Church of England? What's your role to play? So we've got three priority areas that were identified in the paper that approved the creation of the team and they focus on evangelism, discipleship and campaigning. Our work is also part of the Church of England's renewal and reform strategy. So that's about the church being a growing church uh, for all people and in all places. So there's a real focus there around those three areas. And uh, I think this year there's uh, there are three big projects that we're working on around getting our websites in order, uh, getting the Archbishop's websites in order, sorting out a church near you, which is the church's national church finder for our 16 and a half thousand churches and running really compelling social media campaigns so uh, as we did at Christmas and uh, and at Easter and our big focus on on this year's Christmas campaign as well so we've got three sort of building the foundation of the house areas that are our focus this year. What are you most proud of what you've achieved so far I know it hasn't been a long time but is there something anything that sticks out you think actually this is something that Church of England couldn't have done some years ago? I think the launch of the Church of England Digital Labs was, uh, for me, which we launched about a month ago, a really big sign, both internally and externally, that the church is, uh, is looking at technology in all its different forms to really grow people's discipleship, uh, to encourage people to be evangelists, but also, crucially, to bring more people to faith. And, and for me, that was an example of a project where we have our first meeting in in February next year, where the church really reached beyond with our work, our sort of core audience, and it, it got a lot of interest outside um, of our core audience of, of people who are engaged. And, and for me, that was the, a big shift, as well as all of the website work that we're doing, which are really essential projects. That, for me, was is one that um, was a real signal in the way that we're very intentional in the way that we want to use technology to bring more people into relationship with God and the church and to hear good news in their lives. 
social media often gets a slightly mixed reception among some Christians. Do you think it's increasingly difficult to do evangelism, to do discipleship through social media? Is is there a, you know, is it just too much of a toxic atmosphere sometimes to talk about those kind of big questions and faith to build relationship? We've seen with, uh, I think particularly with with Easter this year, how uh, and with Lent and with, with the Lent journey that we did online in collaboration with Church House Publishing and Christian Aid, how just putting really simple uh, daily reflections out there can uh, encourage people and encourage people to engage with um, with Christianity in their life and. A big aim with the work that we're doing is to try out lots of different forms of using all that digital and social gives us to to get people thinking about um, faith and to and to tap into people using very targeted advertising to reach people who we believe are open to the Christian faith to get them to explore it uh, in more detail. So for us, it presents a huge amount of opportunity to to really reach people in a way that the church perhaps hasn't for a while and to do it with all of these new forms of technology. Do you think it's something that dioceses and even parishes should be looking at themselves having people who are deliberately trying to use technology, social media, the internet to reach out to uh, the younger generations particularly perhaps the most unchurched generation we've seen in this country for hundreds of years going to them rather than expecting them to darken the doors of a church? Absolutely and We've seen with uh, with the materials that we're starting to provide, the materials that we're, we're preparing for Christmas, which is our next big social campaign, that um, it's really important that we equip local churches and dioceses. And we actually launched last month uh, this national training programme where we are going to go around the country. We've got half of our dioceses already signed up for it in England to uh, to train local churches, local dioceses, local lay and ordained people in the work of uh, of how to get the best from social media, so practical basics of how churches can use it, uh, but also how they can write really effectively for the web and for social and digital. So we've launched those courses in the last few weeks. We've got five training sessions that we're running before Christmas this year. And my aim is that by July General Synod, which, uh, in 2018, we announced it at July Synod this year, I want to have put 500 people through that training nationally. And for me, it's a really practical and exactly the sort of thing we should be doing as a national team that was never there before to, to really equip and train our churches uh, across the country in, in how to get the most from this emerging area. What lessons have you learned over the last 10 months since your team began a bit more of a concentrated focus on digital? Are there particular pitfalls that you've had to seek to avoid or new opportunities you didn't think might have been there? I think we've seen with, um, I mean, I would say this, but I, I genuinely think we've seen a huge amount of opportunities with, with, with how we can use technology within the church. Um, we've actually... Up- sincerely and honestly met very little resistance to the use of technology i think there's um, there's a huge amount of appetite and desire and and for us it's about doing it in a way that is is true to who who the church of england is for um, a christian organization how we should be and what i'm really excited about is we've got an opportunity to trial a lot of different things so we we um, over the summer ran a number of tests on different uh, evangelism 
and discipleship uh, materials, very, very small tests with small amount of advertising spending. And, and it just allows us that when we come to doing big campaigns at, say, Lent or Easter or, or, or with things like partnering with Thy Kingdom Come, with Lambeth Palace or with, uh, or with our Christmas campaign, that we've researched and tested everything. And I think that's, that's actually helped us a lot, that um, going out to dioceses, not staying in Westminster, uh, but but going out and talking to churches and to dioceses and to bishops and clergy, people who don't go to church, to really understand how we can engage people in the work of the Church of England and bring more people to faith. So you mentioned the um, the next big campaign for you was going to be building up to Christmas this year. Yeah. Could you sketch out just briefly what it's going to look like and are there ways that Christians who are present on social media can get involved so we've got three uh, really simple elements to our campaign which we're calling uh, god with us hashtag god with us that's our that's the focus for this year the first is we're producing a set uh, as we did last year with joy to the world uh, a set of adverts that will allow churches again equipping local churches to share what they do uh, at christmas and showing the joy of christmas the joy uh, of the birth of christ and, uh, and, and to really celebrate that and to encourage people who don't go regularly to church into church at Christmas. The second thing we're also doing is we're rebuilding at the moment and we've been testing it with churches across the country. We're relaunching the, uh, a church near you, a church near you.com, which gets 13 million page views a year. And that will be a resource where churches can put on their service times and events. And, uh, and then people can go on and search for those. So that launches just before Christmas, ready for Christmas. And the last thing that we're doing is we're launching, we've worked with uh, Soul Food, uh, part of Birmingham Diocese, who've written this, which is for people who don't go to church regularly to, uh, it's a little onlo- uh, online and print discipleship booklet that takes people through Christmas and into the new year. And we've worked with Church House Publishing on that. And, um, and you can access that by uh, uh, sending a text message, you can access that on social media, you can access it by email, uh, on the web, and, and also in print form. So a really integrated campaign. You mentioned earlier that this uh, work on digital is part of the broader renewal and reform programme. And as I'm sure you're aware, there is, you, get, you get rumblings of criticism sometimes that the renewal and reform programme is is being kind of captured by one wing of the church. People say it's too much driven by the kind of HTB branded evangelicalism. Do you have to work hard to make sure that your digital efforts encompass the breadth of the church rather than just becoming, you know, replicating one particular tradition? Yeah, that's an absolute central pillar of our work, that everything that we do is 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 to encompass the the breadth and the depth of the Church of England across the country. And, and, and really that's us in the way that we live out um, renewal and reform and delivering that strategy is is to is to really share uh, in the breadth and the depth and variety of churches that make up the Church of England and and that runs through all the work that we do so uh, as to as to church traditions we work with all traditions within the church and uh, I'm really aim to bring that alive with the digital and social work we do. I've heard people say that having a modern church website is as essential as having um, a properly, uh, an easily displayed church sign outside your front door. Would you agree with that? Do you think every church needs to put at least some thought, no matter what size you are or what tradition you're from, into some kind of online presence? Yes, absolutely. And 
that's again a really practical element of our, our work that with the newer church near you our 16 and a half thousand churches across the country from early next year will be able to turn their a church near you page into a, a fully fledged website for free so that is something that we want to offer the ability for churches to turn uh, a basic page into a site it's entirely up to a church uh, a local church whether they want to do it but for free we will work with them to switch their page into a site and we'll also look if they want to buy a domain name or a website name uh, with it we'll offer that service for a very small cost probably in the region of five to ten pounds a year so that's another really practical thing like the training that we really want to offer churches and it's entirely up to churches if they want to take us up on that have you seen much response i know you've been talking about going to the diocese doing this training is it the, the usual suspects, the church is full of young uh, professionals, or are you seeing people from other traditions and from other generations uh, kind of awake to the possibilities of, of digital? Yes, that's been one of the joys of, of doing these focus groups. We've been up in uh, Carlisle, we've been in Birmingham, we've been in Blackburn, uh, we've been in London and, and in other parts of the country as well. And it's been great to see across age ranges um, a lot of enthusiasm for the work that we're doing and a lot of engagement with it as well. I think churches realise that that there is an opportunity and what we, we really want to focus on is, is giving them really practical resources to enable churches to make more use of, of uh, digital and social media. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. (music) 